different rituals and they're doing all the ceremonies and the celebrations and they're bringing in their offerings and there's some people who are like you know what I want to go deeper I want to go deeper in the things of God and then God says look for those who want to consecrate an offering of the vow of the Nazarite they're saying this is a special offering of myself now I'm here to tell you this I think all of us should think of ourselves as our personal offering to the in order to be closer to God, the children of Israel had to go through a mediator and follow the requirements of offerings that were commanded. As Pastor Daniel takes us through numbers, we'll begin to understand all that had to be done for a person to be in relationship with God. When it's put into perspective, the reality of our relationship with the Father becomes clear. It's easy to take for granted our access to Him, and it's all thanks to Jesus. Now, here's Pastor Daniel with part one of his message, Blessings. All right, let's open up in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 6. Numbers, chapter 6. As we continue our study here on through the Bible, through the book of Numbers, and tonight we hit a portion of scripture that is one of our favorites, really. Because by the end of Numbers chapter 6, we're actually going to spend some time looking at what we do almost every service, is what we call the benediction at the end of the service. You're going to find that's at the end of Numbers chapter 6, where it is the plan of God that the priests would bless the people in the name of God. And we're going to apply all of that. Before then, we have something very, very special, and that is the understanding and the explanation of what the Nazarite vow is. Now, before we start, when you hear the, the Nazarite vow, you've probably heard of it. I think Samson in the Bible was probably the most famous, or maybe I should say infamous, of people who took the Nazarite vow. We often think, oh, the Nazarite vow, like Jesus was a Nazarite. But that's actually not what it means. The Hebrew word Nazarite is a person who is marked out for a special time of separation. So the Nazarite vow actually has nothing to do with Nazareth. Does it make sense? But oftentimes you hear, oh, the, the Nazarite vow, you're like, oh, Jesus. No, no, Jesus was from, and he was raised in Nazareth. But the Nazarite vow and Nazareth are not the same thing. So we're going to look at this special vow that some people would take to be consecrated for the Lord. And we're going to make application all the way through. So let's start together in Numbers chapter 6, picking up in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice or eat fresh grapes 
or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled in which he has separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. Now, we begin simply with the Lord speaking to Moses, saying, speak to the children of Israel. Now, this is a common thing that we find in the book of Numbers, isn't it? The Lord is speaking to Moses, and Moses is speaking to the children of Israel. And from time to time, I think it's important that we are reminded that God is not speaking directly to the people. God is speaking to Moses, who is functioning as a mediator between God and people. So do you remember when they were on Mount Sinai? They said, look, we do not want to see the Lord. So Moses, you talk to the Lord and tell us what he said. And Moses is functioning as a mediator. Now, we know as the New Testament happens, who is the mediator between God and man? The man Christ Jesus. You should memorize it. That's in your Bible. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So Moses is a type or a picture or a shadow of Jesus, who is ultimately the mediator. Now, this is what I want to tell you. No pastor is the mediator between you and God. No priest, no special teacher. That's not biblical. Moses was a forerunner for Jesus, and Jesus is the mediator between us and God. So although God will use a pastor or a speaker or a person in unique ways, I don't have like a special line to God. Not any different than the same line that you have to God. And who is that? Jesus, the mediator. And the beauty of prayer is, my prayer isn't more heard than anybody else's. No special pastor who God uses in a special way can hear from God better than anybody else. We all pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. And that's why prayer is such a sweet thing. Because no matter who you are or where you've been or how bad your day in, if you have a faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, then you can just talk to the Father and he's got a ready ear because you are his child. Jesus broke down the middle wall of separation between God and man. Moses or the priestly function was temporary until God could make permanent the relationship for us with Jesus. And I want you, brothers and sisters, my friends, I want you to get deep into the things of God. I want your house to be a house of prayer. I want when we gather together, our house would be a house of prayer. Because we all have equal access to the Father because of the perfections of Jesus. Not one of us has access because of how good we've done or how good the day went or if you did a good ministry. No, our access is solely because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. God's forgiveness offers us fellowship with God. And prayer is the word that we use. 
We only pray to God. We have a special word for it. Why? Because me and you, we can talk. You and your friend, your neighbor, your spouse, you can talk, but you pray to God because that relationship is unique. And I'm here to tell you, listen, one of the things that I'm praying about the most is, God, how do we make Crossroads a house of prayer? How do you and I choose to be intentional about taking that time and seeking the Lord? And when you get together with your friends, just spending time seeking the Lord. I want God to make this a house of prayer. You know why? Because when we are a house of prayer, we will all be on mission with the Lord. Because it's in prayer that God gives his marching orders. That's where God says, listen, I don't want you to be that way. I want you to stop doing that. Hey, you need to get a new job. You need to get busy doing this thing. It happens in prayer. That's where God reveals it. If you're just busy going about your life without taking the time to be set apart to hear from the Lord, you're just going to do what comes naturally. And isn't that the problem in our lives? What comes naturally is not God's will and plan. It's our wills and plans. So Moses is a picture or a symbol of Jesus. He is the mediator between God and the people. But when Jesus comes, we need no other mediator except God's own son. But what does the Lord tell Moses to tell the people? He says, when either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord. Now you notice this. All of God's people are separated, but now there's a group of people who say, I really want to be set apart for the Lord. Now you, you realize that, that you and I get to be as set apart for the Lord as you actually want to be. You realize that. Your relationship with God will be as deep as you desire it to be. And you can imagine for a child of Israel, they're seeing, they're doing all the, the different rituals and they're doing all the ceremonies and the celebrations and they're bringing in their offerings. And there's some people who are like, you know what? I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper in the things of God. And then God says, look, for those who want to consecrate an offering of the vow of the Nazarite, they're saying, this is a special offering of myself. Now, I'm here to tell you this. I think all of us should think of ourselves as our personal offering to the Lord. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 12? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I mean, talk about a paradox. Living sacrifices. You realize that that makes absolutely no sense, right? How can you be a living sacrifice? It is a paradox because we are dying to ourselves and we are sacrificing ourselves, our self-styled life to the Lord. And Paul, inspired by the Spirit, writing to the church in Rome says, look, I beseech you. Now that's an old word. It means I implore you. I beg of you. By the mercy, I beg of you in God's mercy that you present your body as a living sacrifice. He's saying, look, he's pleading with this church he's starting or this church that he wants to go to because he didn't start the church in Rome. He wants to go visit him. He's like, look, I want you to give yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice. He says, when you do that, your sacrifice is holy, it's acceptable, which is your reasonable service. We 
We should all see ourselves not as, well, I do just enough of the things of God to have a relationship with him. But we should all say, God, I want to be all the way in. I want all that you are for me in Christ to be made manifest in my life. I want my life to be a living sacrifice, Lord, that whatever you want to do with this life, God, I am game. Because that is the abundant life. No halfway. No, I kind of do the Jesus thing. No, you can't be a partial sacrifice. So there's a number of stipulations here. Notice first in verses three and four, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor any fresh grapes or raisins all the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Now, we have to realize that in, in that culture, wine was a very common beverage. It, it's, it's common today. And I realize that in 21st century America, we have all sorts of alcoholism and all these things. But wine was very common in Jesus' day. Most People drank wine. Drunkenness was a problem that day. That's why it's in the Bible that we have to be careful. But it was a common drink. Like in a lot of ways, wine in that culture was like soda pop is today. So the idea of being separated from drinking wine would be the normal beverage that you would drink at your table. So I grew up in an all-Italian family. I grew up, my grandfather, my grandmother, my father, they had a glass of wine every single meal for dinner. I never saw any of them they never drank to excess, which is a unique situation, but it was a very common beverage. And in a lot of ways, that's analogous to the way wine functioned in that culture. So to be separated from it, it would be like, look, if, if God said, look, if you want to be set apart, you probably don't want to drink any soda. And listen, it's not a bad thing. Soda's not so good for you. But it's a very common drink. And not only wine, but now you have any sort of vinegar, because all of you love to drink vinegar for fun. I got stories about, I'm not even going to go there. But, and then, of course, grape juice. So any of the fruit of the vine. Now, it even goes so far, not only drinks from the fruit of the vine, but something as simple as raisins, or for those of you who are uh, dealing with regularity, uh, prunes would be out the question, too. <laughs> so, yeah, that's consecrated in a whole different type of way. But the idea is God provides the fruit of the vine, and so there is a voluntary separation from any of the fruits of the vine for this period of consecration, right? So there is a, a drink, a food prohibition. And then, of course, when you get to verse 5, look at what it says. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head, until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. Now, no, I am not under a Nazarite vow. I like my peanut butter and jelly. Thank you very much. But some, every once in a while when someone, you know, because st I still get those, you know, like, oh, man, how can you be a pastor and you have that hair? And I say, I'm a Nazarite. You got to, like, what's that? I'm like, oh, you got to read your Bible instead of judging me. Actually, I don't really say that. I want to say that, though, because God's doing a work in my life. 
But there was this consecration. Now you can imagine, because having your hair growing all wild wasn't the most common thing in that day, even though people had their hair longer in that culture than they did now, the idea was no razor shall come up on your head. So not only was the beard growing, but the hair was growing for the guys, the hair was growing for the gals. And it was a sign of, I am, I am just letting myself be in the presence of God as God would make me. And you have to realize that, that all of our grooming is all us trying to be different than we were made naturally. You know that, right? Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to do it, and I'm not saying that you ladies, that you shouldn't paint the house if it needs painting or whatever. You know, I'm not saying that you shouldn't shave if you, you have a splotchy beard or whatever. But the idea here is, is they're, they're letting themselves be as God made them. And for this period, it doesn't have to be for all the time, but for this period, no hair were, was to be cut at all. And it was allowed to remain relatively unkept. Because the idea here is you're focusing on something different. You're focusing on the relationship with God as opposed to maybe the more superficial parts of life. So there is the separation from any sort of grooming in that way. Now, of course, in verse 6, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother for his brother or his sister when they die because the separation to God is upon his head. Now, I think we all primarily, unless it's our job, have a personal prohibition against touching dead bodies, right? But remember, in this culture, if you were to touch a dead body, you were considered ceremonially unclean. We've studied that a lot, haven't we? And I keep making the point that part of that was to curb the spread of disease as if a body is dead or if there is a, a corpse that is rotting that could spread disease and God was concerned about the health of the people. But here we see that it's not just a general don't touch a dead body. It's like if you have this vow that you've set yourself apart for the Lord, even if a father or a mother or a brother or a sister, even your nearest of kin, if they were to die because of the vow that you've made, you are not to engage in that part of your family. So this is not a small thing. In that culture, when somebody died, like a lot in our culture, there's a big deal that gets made about it. And so this is saying, it's like, remember when Aaron's sons died? Didn't God tell Moses, listen, I do not want you to wail or mourn. Now you can imagine, because of the place that he was a priest, and he was not supposed to mourn for his sons because it was unbecoming of the witness of the priests. Same kind of idea here. Even if a, your nearest of kin were to die, you do not defile yourselves by touching their body. Very unique. It was out of context with the culture. Again, why? Because they're separated unto the Lord. Now look at what happens in verse 9. It says, But if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse and he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering. 
But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. Now, it's interesting because you can imagine there's these prohibitions and imagine all of a sudden he's working or he's doing something and somebody dies and he touches them. What do I do now? And we have this whole ritual that if in the midst of their consecration, in the midst of their vows, somebody dies, again, the first thing he does is he shaves his head on the seventh day after he touches it. It's the day of cleansing. And then there is all of the different rituals. On the eighth day after the head gets shaved, then there's all the different. There's the sin offering and there's the trespass offering. There's all these different animals offered to cover the breaking of his vow. Right? And then he starts over again. So the idea here is that if you don't complete your vow, God still wants you to take care of it. Now, at this point, I think it makes sense because someone will say, well, okay, so what's up with all these vows? What did Jesus say about vows? Anybody remember? Jesus said, don't make vows. Why? Because our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And anything else is from the what? From the evil one. So Jesus said, don't make vows. Because what he's saying is that our lives should have so much integrity that we don't need to make a vow. How many times has somebody said, oh, you know, like you say, oh, this thing, and you're like, oh, no, and they don't believe me. You're like, oh, I swear to God. Now, I know you guys don't say that because you're good church people. But I swear, I swear, right? That is an implication that our yes isn't yes and our no isn't no. And we should live our lives in such a way that we don't need to make promises. I, I swear on my kids. I swear on my mom. I swear on this. I swear on that. We shouldn't have to do any of that because people should know that when we speak, our words have weight. That we do what we say. That we say what we mean. That if we make a commitment, we follow through on those things. Jesus said we don't need to make vows. But people did. There's provisions for it. But Jesus reminds us, you don't need to make a vow. Just follow the Lord and be a person of integrity. But so if there's an accidental death, there's this whole thing that goes on. Now, in verse 13, we kind of get the completion ritual here. It says, now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall present his offerings to the Lord, one male lamb in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering, one ram without blemish as a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offerings. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord, offer his sin offering and his burnt offering, and he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the baskets of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from his consecrated head and put it onto the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated head. Jesus is real. As we continued to follow the children of Israel as they followed God's instructions, Pastor Daniel used their experiences to encourage us to strengthen our relationship with him. 
We have access to God through Jesus, and we should cherish that. Jesus is Real Radio is the radio ministry of Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. The messages that you hear each day here on Jesus is Real Radio were produced from messages that Pastor Daniel shared on Sunday mornings and the midweek study. It's our prayer that this teaching from God's Word blessed and encouraged you in your walk with Jesus Christ. We are seeking people just like you to partner with us. For anyone who supports Jesus is Real Radio with a gift of $25 or more this month, we'll send a special three-part mini-series from a brand new series entitled Friction. To receive your three-CD set, visit JesusIsRealRadio.com and click on Partner. There you can give a one-time gift or support Jesus Is Real Radio monthly. So visit JesusIsRealRadio.com today. Next time on Jesus Is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will talk about the meaning of consecration for both the Israelites and believers today. Vows and consecration will be explained in a whole new light, so please join us. You've been listening to Jesus Is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series in the book of Numbers. Until then, may God bless.